You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado from our Advent series, Love Came Down, a look at the meaning and message of Christmas. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Good morning. Welcome. Uh, If you'd please open with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2. That's where we'll be studying today. And uh, middle schoolers, you are dismissed. Our middle school class meets every Sunday right down those stairs over there. So middle schoolers, you can make your way over there now. But if you're with us in here this morning studying, we're going to be studying Luke chapter 2, which we'll read in just a minute. If you've got a Bible, please follow along with us. If you need a Bible, we've got some that you can use. So go ahead and put your hand in the air and we'll get one of our ushers to bring you one. Uh, you can also follow along in the Version Bible app if, that's, uh, if you like to read the Bible on your phone. So our reading today for uh, the study comes from Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 8. Please read along with me. In the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night, and an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. Verse 16. They went with haste and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured all these things and pondered them in her heart. And the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him in his arms and blessed God, saying, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation." That you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. There was a prophetess, Anna, and her daughter, Phanuel, the tribe of Asher, She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer day and night. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak to him, uh, speak to all, speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. This is God's word. Would you please bow your heads with me and pray? Lord, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for this message of Jesus, and we pray that as we study it, Lord, that we would truly understand the message of this scripture and how it applies to us in our lives. And Lord, may we be 
come, doers of your word, these things that we hear, may they not only remain theory, may they affect our lives in a way that changes us and in a way that affects those around us. So Lord, we ask that you'd work in us in this time, speak to us and give us ears to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. So author Michael Horton wrote an article a few years ago, and in this article he highlighted one of the things which is the key characteristic of Advent. He writes about how he grew up in church, and as in his church upbringing, um, he, he writes this, it was confusing to grow up singing both this world is not my home and this is my father's world. Those hymns embody two very common and yet seemingly contradictory views of the world. You see, the one hymn, this world is not my home, sees this world as kind of a wasteland of godlessness which the Christian looks to really have nothing to do with and then to hopefully escape from. The other hymn, this is my father's world, really celebrates the world as part of God's good creation which is to be enjoyed and redeemed and so we sing both of these hymns and which one is actually the correct view of the world and that's really the key is that in a way to a degree both of them are the correct view of the world this is what we call a paradox a paradox is two things which seem like they are contradictory which seem like they're mutually exclusive like they don't fit together but yet they're both true at the same time and in order to understand christianity you have to understand paradox jesus often spoke in paradox. Jesus said things like, if you want to be great, then you have to become a servant. He said, if you want to be the first, then you've got to become the last. The, the secret to truly living is that you've got to die to yourself. Many of the great passages in the Bible are paradoxes. One of the, many of the great teachings of the Bible are paradoxes. The Bible teaches that you'll never be truly free, for example, until you submit to God as your master. Both these, uh, but with these paradoxes, um, it's really when you consider these two things that seem so different and yet how they fit together, when you begin to do that, you begin to get to the heart of what Christianity is all about and what it is that makes it so special. Now here in our text this morning, we see three paradoxes and as we consider them, they reveal to us what Advent and what Christmas are all about and what they mean for us personally. So the title of today's message is, paradoxes and promises. The three paradoxes that we see in this section are these. First of all, we see a helpless baby who is God Almighty. That's the first paradox. Secondly, we see an eternal king who is destined to die. And thirdly, we see that the wait is over, but yet we still wait. Okay, so let's go ahead and we'll break down each of those as we go along. First of all, we see a helpless baby who is God Almighty. How many of you have seen Charlie Brown Christmas? We watch it with our family every year. Um, you know, this year we went to buy a Christmas tree, and at this place we went to, they had a section called Charlie Brown Christmas Trees. These are the ones that are, you know, they don't have a lot of uh, needles on them, and they're not very pretty looking. And of course, that's where we bought our tree from because they were like really marked down. But the Charlie Brown Christmas, I read about it. It was an interesting thing I read. It was originally a TV special. So it aired on CBS in 1965. Now Charles Schultz is the creator of the Peanuts comic strip, and he was asked by CBS to create a Christmas special uh, for their TV station, and he said he would do it, but with one caveat, one thing that he wanted. He would only do it if they let him include a section where one of the characters read the Bible story of the birth of Jesus. Now, CBS executives were hesitant about it, but Peanuts was such a popular comic strip, they figured well, we really want to do this, so I guess we'll let him do it. 
But they got the producer and the director of the show to try to really do everything they could to talk him out of doing it. Mostly because they thought, first of all, reading a, a section of text in a Christmas special, in a cartoon for that much, I mean, is really not the most exciting thing that you can do in a TV show. But secondly, they said, you know, it's, it's fairly controversial. And so they really tried to talk him out of it. But Charles Schultz was a devout Christian, and he wouldn't budge on this issue. In fact, they, they talk about how in one meeting, the planning meeting, the producer and the director were really trying to put pressure on him to drop this part out of the script. And Charles Schultz said, he said, no, we must do it because if we don't do it, who will? And in the end, CBS gave in and they let him keep that in there. And as a result, every year for 50 years now, millions of families and scores of children watch this movie and they hear the story. At the end, you know, Linus stands up and he reads the same text which we just read for our study this morning and then at the end he says that is what Christmas is all about. The text says this, it says that there were some shepherds watching their flocks by night. Being a shepherd was a hard life. Uh, usually this job was held by the poorest people in society. It was a dirty job. It was an inglorious job. You slept outside. It was a dangerous job because you had to deal with thieves. You had to deal with wild animals who would come for the sheep. Shepherds were usually uneducated, and uh, that's part of the reason why they were looked down upon so much in society. In fact, they, because they were uneducated and because of all the you know, stereotypes that went along with them, if you were a shepherd, your testimony was not admissible in a court of law. That's how much they were uh, looked down upon. Also, because of the nature of their work, especially in Jewish society, shepherds were considered ceremonially unclean because they worked with animals, they touched things that were gross and stuff like that. And so what that did is it made them outsiders in a society which cared very much about being ceremonially clean. See, if you were ceremonially clean and you touched somebody or came in contact with somebody who was ceremonially unclean, then that would make you unclean. And so as a result, nobody wanted to be around shepherds. Really, if you're a shepherd, nobody's inviting you over for uh, dinner or for coffee or anything. You're kind of on your own. You don't got a lot of a social life. And yet it was to a group of shepherds who God chose to speak that night. They were the first ones to whom he announced this good news. Throughout the Bible, that's interesting, God speaks of himself as a shepherd. He associates with these people who in that society were really looked down upon. He calls himself a shepherd. You know, Psalm 23, this most famous psalm, the Lord is our shepherd. Israel's greatest king, David, before he became a king, he had been a shepherd. One of the greatest promises in the Old Testament regarding the Messiah, the Savior, who God promised to send to the world, was that he would come and he would be a shepherd for the people of Israel. In fact, I'd like to show you that text really quickly. If you uh, would like to flip there, you can. Otherwise, we'll have it on the screen. But it's Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40. Now, Isaiah chapter 40 is the beginning of one of the greatest sections of Scripture in the whole Bible. It was written at a time when the people of Judah were in exile in Babylon. This was really kind of the low point in their lives as a collective group of people. You know, I'm sure there's some of you who can relate to that. You know what it's like to be at the low point. But starting in, or starting in chapter 40, Isaiah the prophet begins telling the people that although things are bad right now, they're not always going to be bad. God has not abandoned them. God still has great plans for them as a people and as a nation. And he goes on to give them a glimpse of what the future holds. It begins this way. Comfort, comfort my people, says our God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Cry to her. 
that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity has been pardoned. What he's saying is this. He's saying, what you're going through right now, it's not going to last forever. These hard times, it's not going to last forever. A better day is coming. And let me tell you about that day. He says, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Now, some of you might recognize that text. And if you do, it's because of this. It's because that text, those are the very words that John the Baptist would later use to describe himself, to introduce himself. He said, I am that voice in the wilderness. I am the one who has come to prepare the way for the coming of the Lord amongst us. And it continues and it says, Go up on a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength and fear not. Now I'll just take a break there again. Doesn't that sound familiar? Herald of good news, fear not. Isn't that exactly kind of a parallel of what the angels said on that day when they showed up to the shepherds? They said, fear not, we bring you good news. We come as a herald of good news. And now check out what this good news is. It says in the end of uh, verse nine there, it says, say to the cities of Judah, behold your God, behold the Lord comes. That's the good news. The Lord is coming. God is going to come amongst them. He says, behold, his reward is with him and recompense before him. And here's the thing. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. What Isaiah was saying, he's saying, here it is. This is the good news. God is going to come to us, amongst us. And when he does, he will act as a shepherd for his people. And this is the message that God has curiously decided to announce to no one else except for a group of shepherds. Now that time has come. Later on, Jesus would carry on the same motif. He would refer to himself as the good shepherd who knows his sheep. He would encourage his disciples to also act as shepherds. Clearly, there was something about shepherds that God really liked. Other people looked down on them, but there was something about shepherds and the way that they cared for their flocks that was close to the heart of God, that paralleled the way that he cares for his people. That night in Bethlehem, these messengers from God came and they spoke to these shepherds and they told them the good news. And the good news was this, unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find the child in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. This message, when you think about it, though, is actually kind of strange. And, and I'm sure that they would have picked up on the strangeness of this message. These messengers are telling them this. There's a baby who has been born, and this baby is Christ the Lord. That last word, the Lord, is really the key. You see, going all the way back in Israel's history, at least to the time of Moses, and perhaps even earlier, the name the Lord which in Hebrew, Adonai, this was used specifically in reference to God. We've talked about in our study of Exodus, the thing was that the people considered the personal name of God to be so holy and so intimate that they were afraid of taking God's name in vain, even on accident, and so they wouldn't use the name of God. They would always refer to him as the Lord, so that they were careful not to cross the line and accidentally take his name in vain. So the Lord, that was how they referred to God. So here's the thing. This child is the Lord come to them. The same Lord, the Lord, the the one who appeared to Moses in the burning bush, the one who parted the Red Sea. This is the same Lord who is the Lord of the heavens and the earth, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and Jacob. He himself 
has come to be the Savior. And he has come, but he's come in the form of a helpless baby. Elsewhere in the Bible, we're told that in him, in this child, dwells all of the fullness of deity in bodily form. This is what we call, in theological terms, we call it the incarnation. You could put it this way. Christmas is not so much about a birth as it is about a coming, the coming of God to us, the coming of God into the world. In fact, that's what the word Advent means. It literally means the coming. We read that these shepherds, when they saw these angelic messengers, we read that they were scared. And that reaction shouldn't be all that surprising. I mean, first of all, they're out in this field in the middle of the night by themselves. I mean, think about it. If you're camping, you're out, you know, it's completely dark, you're the only one around, and then all of a sudden there's a bunch of people standing around you, you'd be freaked out too. But on the other hand, there's a more significant reason why they're scared, and that's because throughout the entire Old Testament, whenever anyone comes in contact with God, and anyone has an encounter even with an angel, their immediate reaction is that they are terrified. And so God appeared to Israel as a pillar of fire. God appeared to Job as a hurricane, as a tempest. Uh, when Moses asked to see the face of God, God appeared, uh, God, well, God told him, no, you cannot see my face. If you did, it would kill you. But here, God's message is this, that God has now appeared, but this time he has appeared not as a firestorm, not as a tornado. He's appeared now as a baby. And in Jesus, this is the point, the unapproachable God, the God of unlimited power, came to us so that we could see him, so that we could touch him, so that we could converse with him, so that we could embrace him, so that we could see him face to face, and he could speak to us in our language. Now, why was it that this time God appeared in this way, not as a firestorm, not as a whirlwind, but as a baby. Here's the reason. It was because this time God was not coming to bring judgment. This time God was coming to bear judgment, to bear the judgment for our sins in order to take away the barrier between humanity and God so that we might be reconciled to him. Jesus is God with us. He is God come to us to rescue us and to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves, to make us right with him by ending sin without ending us. And the way that he did that was by sacrificing himself on our behalf. So what does this mean for us? The, the book of Hebrews tells us this exact thing. Well, what does it mean that God became a man and yet Jesus was God? He tells us in Hebrews chapter four, it says that because Jesus became one of us, because he walked in our shoes, because he experienced life in this broken world, he didn't live a privileged life because of that, he's able to empathize with us in our weakness. He's able to empathize with us in the things that we face, the things that we go through, because he's been there himself. You know, think about this. Have you ever lost a loved one? Well, so has he. Have you ever been disappointed? He has too. Have you ever been betrayed by someone close to you? Have you ever been abandoned by someone who said that they loved you? He has too. He's experienced that. Have you ever been treated unfairly? Have you ever lived with pain and experienced pain? He knows what's that, what that's like. He's experienced it himself. But then on the other side of the coin, Hebrews chapter 7 tells us that because Jesus is God, that means that he is able to save us to the utmost, all those who come to him. The message of Christmas is this, that God came to us for two reasons. One was to make himself known to us the other reason was to save us. And so the question we must ask ourselves at Christmas time is this. Do you know him? 
First of all, do you know him? And secondly, have you received the salvation which he came to bring you? It's only when you can answer yes to those two questions that you've really taken hold of the Christmas spirit. Do you know him and have you received that salvation? That is the message of Christmas. The second paradox we see is somewhat related to the first. It's an eternal king who's destined to die. So after the visit of the shepherds in our text, we read that Jesus was brought to the temple in Jerusalem to be circumcised on the eighth day, which was the custom amongst all the Jews. But then we read about a separate event. We got to see that those are two separate events. When Jesus was brought back to the temple a little bit later, and he was dedicated in the temple. Now it's interesting because recently in our study of Exodus, we read about the very time when this practice was instituted. Every, here's, here's the practice. Every firstborn child was to be given to the Lord as an offering, really a sacrifice to God. They were to be given back to God as a sacrifice, and then they were to be symbolically redeemed. So it was kind of a little bit of formality, but it was very symbolic. They would take the firstborn child and give it to God, and then they would purchase that child back. And the way they would purchase that child back or redeem that child was they would sacrifice an animal in its place. And symbolically what that represented is that that animal died and that child now got to live. And traditionally this was done, it says in the law, it's specified, it was done with a lamb. But see, lambs are fairly expensive. And so if you were a poor person, kind of a, an exception was made for the poor. The poor were allowed, if they couldn't afford to purchase a lamb, they were allowed to sacrifice two pigeons or two turtle doves, which were relatively cheap so they could afford that. But the symbolism was still there. You're, you're killing this one thing in order to redeem the life of another. And, and surely, you know, being that this was symbolic ritual, being that it was a bit of a formality because human sacrifice was absolutely forbidden amongst the Jews. And I'm sure there were a lot of people who wondered, well then why do this? Why go through all this formality? Why spend all this money for this thing when we know that you're not really going to kill a child because that's totally contrary. Why go through all this? I'm sure some people wondered throughout the ages, why all this ritual? What it tells us about Jesus' family, that they were not able to afford a lamb, that they had to sacrifice these pigeons, these turtle doves, it tells us that they were poor. On the other hand, you have this promise of the Messiah, the promise of a king, king of wealth, a king who would reign on the throne of David, and he would reign forever. And yet here's Jesus, he's born in poverty, and we know that one day he's going to go the way of the lambs, he's going to go the way of the pigeons in the temple. His life is going to be taken as a substitute, as a sacrifice to redeem the lives of others, to purchase them so that they might live because he died on their behalf. And here we see the second paradox. This baby who is the Messiah, the eternal king, he is destined to die. Now let me ask you, what kind of eternal king does something like that? Doesn't death kind of negate eternity? Right? Doesn't that mean defeat rather than victory? This is something which confused many people, including Jesus' own disciples, throughout the time that they were with him, even up to the point of after his death. At one point, after Jesus' disciples had been with him for probably over a year, 
Um, they had seen him do amazing miracles. They had heard him speak about the kingdom of God. One day, we read uh, there in Matthew chapter 16, they were walking along on the road to Caesarea Philippi, and Jesus was chatting with them, and he asked them a question. He said, who do people say that I am? And they said, well, some say that you're John the Baptist. Others say that you're Elijah or, you know, another one of the prophets reincarnated, basically. And Jesus said, well, what about you guys? That's what they say about me. Who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And it says that Jesus commended him for saying that. But then right after that, Jesus told them something that none of them expected to hear. He told them that he would now be going to Jerusalem and that he would go there and, and there he would suffer and he would suffer injustice, but he'd also suffer physically and eventually he would die. He would be put to death, but on the third day he would rise. And it says that when he told them those words, that I don't think they heard that part about him rising on the third day. They just heard he's gonna go and suffer and die. And it says that Peter pulled him aside and said, what are you talking about? knock it off. He says that he rebuked him. He said, that's not true. You're the Messiah. The Messiah is an eternal king. Messiah doesn't die. What are you talking about all this dying nonsense? You've got to cut that out and go set it straight with the other guys. And what did Jesus say to Peter? This man who he just commended and said, you have heard from God about me being the Messiah. He says, get behind me, Satan, for you are a hindrance to what God wants to do. See, what Peter didn't understand in that moment is what many people didn't understand. How could the Messiah be an eternal king and yet die? That just doesn't fit together. That's the very reason why after Jesus' death, we see the disciples and they're absolutely crushed. They're absolutely destroyed by the fact that Jesus has died. And they're wondering, well, what are we going to do with our lives now? Some of them we see they go back to their old occupations. Well, I guess I'll just go back to fishing because that's all I know, I mean, I gave that up, but I've got nothing left because I gave up everything for this Jesus thing, but it obviously didn't work out because he died. And they even say at one point, well, we thought that he was going to be the Savior, but he died. What they failed to see, what Jesus showed them, was that through Jesus' death, that was how he accomplished victory. It seemed like defeat, but it was actually the greatest act of victory because it was through his death and through his resurrection that Jesus overcame sin and death on our behalf. He broke the curse which we had brought upon himself. It was through his death and resurrection that he became our eternal king. You see, the message of Christmas is that God is at the same time both holy and loving. A lot of times when people talk about God, they, they will see him as either holy or loving. But that's the message of Christmas, that God is at the same time both holy and loving. Because he is holy, he cannot just overlook sin and injustice and wrongdoing, even the things that we do wrong. But because he is loving, God came down to us. Because he realized that we were incapable of climbing up to him. He came down to save us, and because of that, there is hope in the world. Remember what the angels said to the shepherds. They said, we bring you good news and that's really important. The gospel is good news, not good advice. The gospel is good news, not good advice. See, here's the difference between news and advice. Advice is someone telling you what you ought to do. But news is a report of what has been done. In other words, advice is telling you that you need to act. But news is telling you that someone else has acted. When the angels appeared to the shepherds, they didn't tell them what to do. They told them what had been done. The angels didn't tell the shepherds that they, what they needed to do for God. They told them what God had done for them. 
how God had acted on their behalf and sent the Redeemer who would save them. The message of the gospel, the good news for you and me today, it's not a message that we need to do something for God. It's a message that Jesus Christ has acted on our behalf. He has done something for us. Because of what he has done for you, he came for you. Through his life, his death, his resurrection, he defeated sin and death. He broke the curse. And because of that, you can be free. You can live in his kingdom forever. What seemed to everyone in Jesus' day as an irreconcilable contradiction, an eternal king who's destined to die, we can now see that those two things together are the greatest message of love and hope the world has ever known. It was through his death that he became our eternal king. It was through his death that he gained victory. It was done for us on our behalf. You see, the more you take this good news of what God has done for you to heart, the more it will shape your life and your actions. I think it's interesting if you notice in the text, it doesn't say that anyone told the shepherds that they needed to go out and tell other people about this news or tell other people what had happened, but they did. They weren't told that they had to, but they did. Why? Because they were so moved by the news of what God had done for them that they couldn't keep it to themselves. And I pray that that would be true of us as well. The final paradox we see in this text is perhaps the greatest of all, and that's this. The wait is over, but yet we wait. On the day that Jesus was dedicated in the temple, we read that there were two elderly people there. One's name was Simeon, and the other was named Anna. Simeon had received a promise from God that he would live to see the coming of the Messiah. And that day, as he saw Jesus come into the temple, he knew God showed him That's the one. The day has come. There he is. And both Simeon and Anna say a similar thing. They both basically say, the long wait is finally over. Our redemption has come. For centuries, even for thousands of years, the people have been watching and waiting and hoping for the day when God's promises would be fulfilled and the Messiah would come and God's redemption would come. And Simeon and Anna, they both rejoiced. They said, finally, the wait is over. Our redemption has come. But here's the thing. They said that, but that was like 2,000 years ago, right? And so here we are today, and Jesus came and went away again, and here we are, left still waiting. In fact, that's a big part of what Advent is all about. It's about waiting. During the season of Advent, we remember how Jesus has come, and now we await his coming again. You know, I don't know about you, but I don't know anybody who likes to wait, who enjoys waiting, right? How many of our kids enjoy waiting for Christmas to come? Feels like it'll never come to them. But waiting is part of the Christian life. Paul the Apostle says a lot about waiting. He says, we who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. In his first coming, Jesus redeemed us, but now we wait with expectation for the day when our redemption will be completed. In another place, Paul talks about our waiting again. He says, our citizenship is in heaven and from there we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will redeem or transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. (coughs) There's an old tale that is told of a man who was born and raised in a prison. He grew up in a prison. And that prison was full of other people who had also been born and raised within the walls of that prison. They had never seen anything outside of that dungeon. 
And one of the great debates that the prisoners used to have among themselves was whether there actually was anything on the other side of the walls, whether there was a world outside of the prison because the prison had no windows. They never went outside. It was dank and it was dark and so they would sit around all the prisoners together. But there was this one young man who used to say, you know, there must be more than this. There has to be something more than just this prison that we live in. There must be an outside world out there, outside the walls of this prison. And the jailers would always come around and try and say, no, 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 really, guys, there's really nothing more than this. And the warden would tell them, there's nothing else out there. This is all there is. And they would have their debates every day, and and almost everybody in the jail agreed, this is all there is. There isn't anything else out there. But one day, somebody came into the dungeon from another part of the prison, and he said, look, I actually didn't come from another part of the prison. That's just what they want you to believe. That's just what they're telling you. I actually came from the outside. I've been out there. And I know that there's another world out there. That's where I'm from. I've been there. And this man from the outside, he began scratching pictures on the walls of the prison. He would scratch out a picture of a tree. He described to them through these pictures what the world outside looks like. He etched a picture of a tree. He drew out the sun. He drew clouds. And he talked to them about colors. You see, the colors they had seen in prison, all they knew was gray and black and maybe brown, but the only colors, that's all the colors they knew. But this other man, he told them about the colors on the outside. He told them about yellow. He told them about green and pink and orange and blue. And eventually that prisoner left. And the young man, he sat around wondering. He said, I wonder if what he said was true. I wonder if it was right. I wonder if it was real. One other thing that the man had told him was that there was a prince out there in that outside world, the prince of that other world. And that prince had said that one day he was going to break into that prison and he was going to take the prisoners and set them free. So one day this young man is sitting in his cell and he hears something in the wall, some digging on the outside of the wall and suddenly in bursts a stream of light because somebody has broken a hole in the wall of the prison and in comes this stream of light through the dungeon wall the size of a hand not very big the man looks through that hole and there's that world that world that he had only heard about as the young man looked out he saw a tree and it wasn't really what he had expected a tree to look like because he'd never really seen a tree he'd only seen a picture of a tree etched on the wall of a prison but he recognized that that's a tree And he saw the sun and he heard the voice of the prince and the prince said, now you've gotten a glimpse of me. Now you've gotten a glimpse of this world and I want you to know I'm preparing to come in and take you out of here for good. But until then, live in the hope of what you've seen through the wall. That young man, although he continued to live in this dungeon, his life was changed by that encounter. It caused him to live differently every day because he now had a vision for what was coming. He had hope for the time was coming that he's going to become part of that outside world. And now he's gotten a view of what awaits him and it caused him to live in a completely different way because now he has hope. You see, that story is exactly what it means to be a Christian. People all around you telling you, This life is all there is. There's nothing else out there. You're born, you live, you die, the end. But you're saying, no, that can't be. There must be something more than this. Everything inside of me tells me that I was made for something more than just this. I was built for something greater. I was built for noble deeds. I was built for light and beauty and laughter. And one day, Jesus Christ comes into your life and he says, you're right. 
And look, I've opened a hole in the pitiless walls of this world, a window into my kingdom. And one day I'm coming back and I will take you there. But until then, live in the hope of what you've seen through the hole in the wall. Imagine how that would change your life if every day you looked through that hole at that outside world and you lived your life in the perspective that the time was coming when you would be set free and become part of that outside world. It would cause you to live with so much courage. It would cause you to live with so much perspective and so much hope as you wait for the day when your redemption is complete. See, this is the message of Christmas. He has come and he is coming again. This is the paradox. It reveals these wonderful truths and the hope of the gospel. And I want to encourage you today, embrace the good news of what God has done for you and live in the hope of what is to come. God Almighty, he loves you, he came to you, and he gave his life for you in order to save you. Let the knowledge of that fill you with courage to face whatever life brings your way and let it motivate you to love others as he has loved you. Would you please stand with me and we'll pray. Lord, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for your love that redeems us. Lord, we thank you for your action on our behalf and thank you for this good news, not good advice. Lord, thank you that you have acted on our behalf. And Lord, we collectively today, we embrace that, we receive that, and we thank you for what you've done for us. We thank you that you are our Savior. Lord, may we walk with you. May we live in light of what we have seen through the hole in the wall like that man in prison. Lord, we ask that you do a work in us as we prepare and as we wait for Christmas. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in northern Colorado from our Advent series, Love Came Down, a look at the meaning and message of Christmas. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.